this episode, we're going to look at Paul turning 60, four years of his life outlined by Dr. Luke's account in Acts chapters 21 through 28. In our world, age 60 is starting to move toward retirement age, the golden years. But at age 60 in the Roman Empire at the time of Paul, he was one of the older guys walking the planet. Perhaps a better term would be limping the planet. Paul's really, really been beat up. We'll find in today's story, Dr. Luke is traveling and being incarcerated with him the whole time. Paul needs a doctor. Other than early in his ministry, when Paul put himself in study isolation, Paul's been a mouse in a room full of cats. He's been battered around terribly for the decade and a half he's been making his missionary journeys into Asia Minor, Asia, Macedonia, and Greece. Where on earth did Paul get his motivation to go on, much less his courage? There's several obvious answers to that. The first comes out of the Old Testament. As a brilliant student of the Old Testament and a law expert, Paul may have had the Old Testament largely memorized. And sprinkled throughout the Old Testament were courage-enhancing passages. One of those is David's Psalm 139. You wove me together in my mother's womb. You ordained my days before there was one of them. You enclosed me behind and before and lay your strong right hand over me. God knowing our exact days and protecting us as we live them. That's pretty courage-inducing. We also know Jesus had spoken to Ananias after Paul's conversion, telling Ananias, Give Paul this message. You'll spread the gospel to the Gentiles, and you will stand before kings. Coming up on age 60, Paul knew he'd spread the gospel, but he hadn't stood before kings. So at least until that happened, he was invincible. He had it as a word of the Lord. Can you imagine being an emergency responder, a soldier, a police officer, or a doctor in infectious diseases? Do you think it would change how you operated every day if you knew you were absolutely invincible? Paul lives out each day, a mouse being battered around in a room full of cats, but with a sense he is invincible until he stands before kings. With that in mind, let's take a look at his story in Acts 21 through 28. Paul is in Caesarea and he heads to Jerusalem with Dr. Luke. When he gets there, he's warmly received by James, the leader of the Jerusalem church. That, by the way, is Jesus' half-brother Jimmy. Paul reports to James and the elders what's been happening on his missionary journeys, and there is great joy. Many apprentices are being made for Jesus, thousands of them. The elders report to Paul they've been hearing story after story, allegation after allegation, that Paul is teaching Jews around Asia Minor, Asia, Macedonia, and Achaia not to obey the Old Testament laws or circumcise their children. Now mind you that Paul is discouraging Jews from doing this. Of course Paul is discouraging Gentiles from doing it. What he's discouraging the Jews from doing is seeing, keeping the law or circumcision as making them right with God. That he's guilty of. James and the elders suggest a step Paul should take to show the Jews in Jerusalem what they've heard is a crock. They suggest Paul do something from the Old Testament law, a right to demonstrate his compliance as a Jew. Paul does that, then goes into the temple to do Jewish worship things that Jews were instructed to do under the law. 
He's also, by the way, delivered that offering from the churches he's planted in Asia, Macedonia, and Achaia, or Greece. Money given mostly by by believers who were Gentiles. How cool is that? Gentiles caring for Jewish people in need. While Paul's in the temple, some Jews from Asia recognize him, and they immediately tattle on him. This is the ringleader, the guy who's making life for us Jews miserable. These tattlers provoke the whole city. The cats drag Paul out of the temple, surround him, and the battering gets ugly. They are beating him with the intent to beat him to death. The Roman commander at the garrison right at the temple steps in. He snatches the mouse Paul from these cats, puts him in chains, and leads him away to be interrogated. But the mob is so violent, the soldiers have to pick Paul up on their shoulders. As they go up the steps to the barracks, Paul asks if he can address this violent mob. The commander agrees. Somehow quieting the crowd, Paul begins to speak to them in Hebrew. Read Paul's defense. It's basically his testimony. He cites how zealous he was for the law, trained by their main teacher, Gamaliel, a persecutor of this Jesus church. He tells them what happens on the road to Damascus. He even has the guts to say God spoke from heaven and he identifies the voice as Jesus. You'd think this crowd would go nuts right there, but they continue to listen. Paul continues that he was in the temple and he went into a trance. That he was told by Jesus, I'm going to send you to the Gentiles. When Paul says this, the cats go crazy. Think about that for a moment. He identifies Jesus of Nazareth as God and they listen. But when he has the gall to mention God wants to redeem the Gentiles, they flip out. They start tearing their clothes, throwing dust in the air and running at Paul. The centurion brings Paul into the barracks. The centurion wants to scourge this guy and get out of him what it is that he's done that would make the Jews out there so crazy. As they're tying Paul up, Paul pulls out his Roman citizen card. Really? You're going to cuff and whip an unaccused Roman citizen? Hmm, that sounds like that's going to come back on you. They immediately untie Paul. The commander orders the priests into a hearing. Those priests assemble and start leveling charges to the commander regarding Paul. When it's Paul's turn to respond, he says, Commander and gentlemen, I have a clear conscience before God. At this, the high priest orders someone to strike him in the face. Have you ever been popped in the face? Paul lashes back. God will strike you, you whitewash wall. A bystander lashes back. How dare you say that to God's high priest? Paul replies, I didn't know he was the high priest. God's word said, show respect for those in authority. Some people see this as evidence Paul could barely see. He couldn't even see the fancy clothes the high priest would wear. Paul takes another tack. Knowing he's surrounded by Pharisees and Sadducees, he defends himself this way. I'm a Pharisee and I'm on trial for the hope of the resurrection of the dead. That's brilliant. Knowing the Sadducees didn't even believe in a resurrection, and the Pharisees white-knuckled that, the Pharisees and Sadducees in the room, they go after each other. I can almost see Paul smile, fold his arms, and watch the cat fight. You ever seen a cat fight? The commander takes Paul into protective custody. 
He's afraid these people will tear Paul apart. That night, Jesus appears or speaks to Paul. Don't be afraid. You must go and be my witness in Rome. As if Paul needed more courage, Jesus had just promised, no matter what happens around you, you're going to Rome. Got it? Also that night, the Jews come up with a conspiracy. Forty men make an oath they won't eat or drink until they murdered Paul. Paul's nephew hears of this ambush and he tells the commander, that very night, with 200 soldiers and horsemen, take Paul to Caesarea, to Felix the governor. There in Caesarea, Paul gives his testimony to Governor Felix. He's not a king, but Paul's getting warmer. Governor Felix tells the Jewish accusers in Jerusalem to bring charges. Five days later, priests and a number of leading authorities bring a hired gun fancy lawyer to press charges on Paul. The lawyer starts out and he's a real kiss-up. After schmoozing Governor Felix, he states that Paul is stirring up rebellion. He's a ringleader of this Jewish sect, and he's desecrated their temple. When it's Paul's turn to respond, he says, Governor Felix, you're a smart guy. You know the facts. You know this is a sham. They can't prove a thing. I'm guilty of none of this. But there is one thing I am guilty of. I believe in the resurrection from the dead, the resurrection of Jesus. That's what I'm the ringleader of. With that message, I'm stirring up people. In that area, I'm guilty as charged. Governor Felix puts Paul under house arrest. We'll find it lasts for two years in Caesarea. During this time, Felix will often come to Paul and visit with him. He's hoping Paul and his people will grease him with a bribe. But when he comes, instead, Paul greases him with preaching the gospel. And frankly, the gospel frightens Governor Felix. At the end of this two years, Felix is replaced by Portius Festus, the new governor. Wanting to please the Jews, who are continually a thorn in Rome's side, Festus leaves Paul in protective custody. The Jews don't just want him incarcerated, they want him dead. They've been nursing this grudge for two years. So they urge Governor Festus to bring Paul to Jerusalem to stand trial. When Paul hears the plan, he pulls out his Roman citizenship card again. He tells Governor Festus, these charges are baseless. They're going to assassinate me. So in view of my rights as a Roman citizen, I appeal to Caesar. Festus thinks, then says, you've appealed to Caesar, and to Caesar you shall go. Jesus had told Paul, you'll be my witness in Rome. And Festus has just ordered him a ticket to Rome at Roman expense. While they're getting that ticket, King Agrippa and Queen Bernice visit Caesarea. Governor Festus tells King Agrippa about this prisoner, Paul. King Agrippa said, I'd like to meet and hear this guy. He shall stand before kings. The next day, Festus summons Paul to the court. King Agrippa and Bernice are there in all their pomp and glory, as well as a number of prominent others. King Agrippa says to Paul, go ahead and speak. Sir, I am delighted to do so, especially since you are an expert among the Jews. Then Paul gives his testimony again. He gives us more information about his past, how furiously he ravaged the church of Jesus. He elaborates on the words Jesus said to him on the road. Like telling Paul, I will rescue you from both Jews and Gentiles as you take the gospel to the ends of the earth. 
Paul finishes his testimony saying, I've just obeyed the orders of Jesus to preach that all people will repent. I'm honoring the law of Moses and the word of the prophets, that God would bless all nations, Jews and Gentiles, through the Messiah. King Agrippa, you know these things. You know the law and the prophets. Then Paul gives an invitation. King Agrippa, do you believe what the prophets say about the Messiah? We don't know the intonation of his voice, but this is what Luke records. He either says, in a short time, you'll persuade me to become a Christian, or he says, in a short time, you'll persuade me to become a Christian. Those are two very different responses, aren't they? Paul is sent out of the court, and King Agrippa gives his verdict. This man could have been released had he not appealed to Caesar. But Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles, has not gotten to the top of the food chain yet. The top of the food chain is in Rome. Within a few days, Paul, another companion in Luke, are on a ship bound for Italy. They're under the care of a centurion named Julius. We're told they sailed north of Cyprus, near the coast of Asia Minor. They get to Crete. They get delayed in a seaport. Paul tells the centurion, we need to stay here for the winter. If we sail, there'll be damage or loss of life. But the centurion listens to the captain of the ship. They at least want to make it to a better harbor on Crete and spend the winter there. But when they get out of the harbor, a terrible storm occurs. They're swept out into the Mediterranean Sea. They didn't see the sun or stars for two weeks, nor did they eat. They threw cargo and tackle overboard to lighten the ship. Even these hardened sailors were desperate, hopeless. It's at this point, the four-foot-six, bald, aging prisoner takes over the ship. He tells the men, Take courage, gentlemen. There'll be no loss of life. God has told me I must stand before Caesar, and now he's told me all your men on the ship will be saved. By the next day, they have a sense they're approaching land. Again, Paul takes over. You need to stay on the ship, and you also need to eat. You're going to need your strength. Dr. Luke tells us there are 276 men on this ship, and Paul declares they'll all be saved if they follow orders. In the morning, they can see a large island and a bay with a beach. They head for that beach but hit a reef. The bow gets stuck, and the waves begin to break apart the ship. The soldiers intend to kill the prisoners, but the centurion wants to save Paul, so he orders everyone to grab a plank and head for shore. The island is the island of Malta. Residents there show them great kindness. They build them a large fire. Paul's helping, and when he grabs a pile of sticks, a poisonous viper bites him. The residents of the island see this and think, that's really karma. He's likely a murderer, and though saved from the sea, the gods are giving him what he deserves. But the poison doesn't affect Paul at all. He's fine. Now they think something else of Paul. A prominent man on the island is named Publius. He too shows kindness. Publius' father is a very sick man with a chronic fever and dysentery. Paul goes into him and heals him. When others on the island with diseases or sickness hear this, they bring those folks to Paul. Paul does not waste this miraculous sign from God. He uses this sign to authenticate the truth of his preaching about Jesus as Messiah and Lord. They're on the island for three months. When they finally get ready to leave, the people of the island give them a shower, all the supplies they need. 
Within weeks, they arrive at Rome. And upon arrival, Paul is met by some of those 26 people or households he mentioned in his letter to the Romans. In Rome, Paul is put under house arrest with a guard. During this house arrest, Rome is waiting for formal charges to be filed. In this house arrest, people can come and go, and there is a steady stream. Large numbers of people come to his house from morning to evening. Luke gives us the idea it wasn't exactly a smashing success. He cites an Old Testament prophecy that people, though hearing, would not hear. But something else happened during Paul's two years of house arrest in Rome, besides the people coming and going. Paul composed a few additional letters. We call them his prison letters. We know them as Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians. And we'll look at these amazing prison letters of Paul in our next three episodes.